Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Does anyone know what it is? Let's hear it really nice and loud. All right, is anyone uncomfortable saying that? I saw a couple people's faces get like, what was that? Get lit. Now, if you are over the age of 45, you are thinking differently than what if you are under 45. To get lit is not what some of you older people are thinking. It means to get excited. Amen? That was really weak. To get lit means to get excited. Amen? Okay. So what we've been doing over the last three weeks is we've been walking through the Christmas narrative, looking at different characters and their faith. We've looked at doubting faith like Zechariah. Has anyone had any doubting faith in their life at any given point? Let's see your hands, right? Okay, good. We're all a bunch of Zacharias, right? What about the idea of childlike faith? full of wonder and excitement and just like, just have tons of questions because you really want to know the answers. Anyone ever have childlike faith, right? Like Mary and Joseph, right? What about crazy faith? Like you have felt a holy nudge to do something so out of control and you knew that it was the Holy Spirit saying, I don't know what this is, but I need to step out and do it just like the Magi. Anyone else, right? Good, a few of you. Okay, we're going to make you a little crazy, right? We did the song last week. We're going to leave that alone this week. But here's what I want to do today. I want to look at the same passage from last week. But I want to look at a different character. And I know that this morning, December 19th, the Sunday before Christmas, you're thinking, can't you just make this a real light and fluffy sermon? Anyone feeling that way? They just need a really light and fluffy sermon this morning? Good, because you ain't getting it. You ain't getting it. We are actually going to look at a character that was really the one who birthed the idea of the Grinch or Scrooge. Think about the Grinch and Scrooge, the one who tried to steal Christmas, the one that tried to disrupt Christmas, right? Grinch or the Scrooge. We are actually going to look at an individual who tried to literally kill Christmas. Someone who tried to kill Christmas in the Christmas narrative. Now you probably know where I'm going. What we're actually going to talk about today is oppositional faith. As I was writing down all the different forms of faith, this one individual kept popping up in my mind as I read and I read and I read and I was writing on my whiteboard and writing on my whiteboard. I'm like, I can't leave this one out. Opposition. To resist. Or be hostile towards others, expressed in action or argument. Opposition. Some of you have felt opposition in your life. Some of you have felt opposition when you became a Christian. Some of you have felt that when you first became a Christian, that was like, oh, that's really good. That's exciting. Hopefully they don't get too radical. But the more you fell in love with Jesus, the more questions and concerns and the more disagreements and arguments started popping up amongst people that, that you really believe loved you. And what we're going to do today, because I believe this is imperative, for us to get lit, we have to deal with the idea and the concept and the truth that we will deal with opposition. And yes, this morning, we are going to do a study in the one who tried to kill Christmas. Because I believe that if we understand opposition and how to handle opposition, my last point to this morning is going to make complete sense. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I want to thank you for whatever you for whatever you have already done this morning. I actually want to thank you for what you had done last night online, as someone already watched the sermon. 
And I ask you that, that as much fun as we've had in this sermon series, talking about childlike faith and crazy faith, that today that there would be a, a spiritual imagery in our hearts that our roots are going to go really, really deep. I ask you that in a season of life where our world is going wrong, we would experience the rightness, the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Matthew chapter 2. And it's, exact, it's the exact same passage that I, that I looked at last week. But it's always, there's certain things that we don't like. And when we don't like things, what do we do? We, we, we jump over it. We, we fast forward it. We kind of, we kind of want to read the end before the beginning. But today, we're going to stay stuck right in the middle. It says in Matthew 2, verse 1 through 3, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. During the reign of King Herod, about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone else in Jerusalem. So when we look at this passage, the first thing that we have to recognize is that Jesus was already born. We, don't, we do not know the exact time Jesus was born, but we knew that he was born and that there were travelers from eastern lands that had found themselves near Bethlehem. And when they showed up near Bethlehem, the character jumps out in the passage whose name is King Herod. In about three minutes, we'll talk about how he was deeply disturbed, but, but I really think it's important for us to understand King Herod. Now, when you open up Scripture, there are some historical figures that are going to jump out at us, such as Pharaoh in Exodus. Yes, Pharaoh was a real living being, just like Herod was a real living being, just like Herod's father, Herod the Great, was a real living being that we read about all throughout the history books. Herod, also known as Herod the Great or Herod Antipas, he ruled in the early first century AD, and he ruled over Galilee and Perio. Now there's a lot we're going to learn about Herod, but but when most people think of Herod, outside the second point I'm going to make, many people remember all of the historical buildings that Herod had brought in to that part of the world. Matter of fact, what Herod had done, and he did this, and I believe in a very manipulative way, he rebuilt David's temple, and guess what they called it? Herod's. And he was known for, for all these grandiose buildings and, and the architect. And yes, there was a whole lot of Judaism that, that was attached to these buildings. But there was something more. Herod was in the seat of power, a kingly position, over different regions, and one of them was Bethlehem. But here's what we learn about Herod. Herod was not a very nice man. Historically, when you read about Herod Antipas, Herod the Great, he was not a very nice man. I mean, think about this. This is what Caesar Augustus said about Herod. He said, it is safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Now, I realize man has his best friends. That's called his what? Dog, right? But this is going to a whole nother level. Why did Caesar Augustus say this? Because this is what Herod did. When anyone tried to come against him, he would put him to death. Let me give you a list of people that he put to death. And these are all people that were related to him. His brother-in-law. His mother-in-law. Now, we're not going to go into that. I did not say that. His wife and his two sons. And so even in his family, those that he would say he loved most... His wife and his sons, he had them put to death. 
because they would challenge his authority. And there's only so many times that Herod was going to allow his authority to be challenged. And when he thought it was being challenged too much and fear and paranoid, paranoia came into his being, he became violent. You see, Herod came into power at the age of 27. And when he opened scripture right now, he's 71 years old. Let me give you some nicknames that historians have given to Herod. Not just the Christians, right? Not just Christian authors, but historians throughout history. Josephus, probably one of the the greatest historians ever, called him barbaric. Another writer called him a malvolent maniac. Another called him the great pervert. And then there was a title given to him after the events of what we are going to read, the Butcher of Bethlehem. Yes, that is a name given to Herod Antipas, the butcher of Bethlehem. I mean, think about when we open the history books, we think of people such as Adolf Hitler, we think about Stalin, we think about Saddam Hussein, right? We think about all of these names that rise to the surface. That's who Herod was. And the older he got, the more paranoid he became, the more violent he became. And now, at the age of 71, it says in Matthew chapter 2, he was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. I mean, we love Christmas cards. We love to simplify the gospel. There is nothing simple about the event of Christmas. Amen? I mean, think about this. There was an entourage of close to 300 maybe plus individuals. And I would say a good 100 plus were all Persian warriors. And when the people saw this entourage coming towards Jerusalem, and they saw that they were from the Persia region, fear would have been struck when each one of them. Because there's certain people in the world you mess with, and there's certain people in the world you do not mess with. And Herod more than likely had heard the stories of the Persian army and how violent and cruel and malicious they were. And he's probably thinking, if I'm bad, how bad are these characters? And he had no idea why they were showing up. But there's a word to be disturbed. It sounds so proper, doesn't it? Well, what does it mean to be disturbed? It means to shake violently. Have any of you ever been so upset that you shook violently? Do I get an amen? Amen. Wow, there's only me, right? And, and Brendan, thank you. Brendan, we're maniacs, sorry. Has anyone been so upset that you have shaken violently? Seriously. Think about, think about the word disturbed. We, we, we like to kind of make it like clean and proper. The definition means to shake violently, to be angry, to be resentful, and even having the sense of being threatened. That's what it means to be disturbed. And Herod was disturbed to his core. He was shaking. Who are these people? Why are they coming into my territory? Now, now here's what we oftentimes don't talk about Herod. We look at Herod as this, as this ruler on the side. Just another guy in the history books. But there's so much more. Do you know Herod was half Jewish? His mother was Jewish. She was devoutly Jewish. It is known throughout history, when you study the history books about, about Herod and his family, that, that his father was a complete heathen. And his mother was completely religious. And what Herod had done was he kind of picked and chose the aspect of Judaism that he wanted to serve. So there were some high holy days that he would show up to. And other ones he'd be like, we don't celebrate that in this house. Wow, Christmas and Easter. Did I just go there? Think about this. How many people do you know that say, well, I was Christian by birth. I grew up in a Christian home. 
I show up to church on, on Easter and Christmas. That's who Herod was. That's really bad company, right? Here he was, he played the game. And when you really study Herod and the history of Herod's reign, he actually practiced some purification rituals. But then there was other ones he wouldn't touch. When you would walk around his palaces, you would actually see writings and pictures of, of the scripture narratives all throughout his palaces. But yet, he actually didn't believe most of them. Because there came a point in Herod's life that he was his own God. Do I believe any of us will ever be a Herod in this room? No. But I do believe that there was an aspect of Herod that we all have to be very careful of. Ego. Ego is the enemy. One of the most important books I read, I've ever read, which I read four years ago, was a book called Ego is the Enemy. And I was thinking, man, I'm a pastor. Pastors don't have egos, really? <laughs> have you ever met with a pastor? Right? And I went through this book. It was a secular book. It wasn't a Christian book. There weren't any Bible verses in it. Matter of fact, there were some words in there that some of you may not like. And I read this book, and I found myself on my hands and knees repenting for my ego. Because what drove Herod to a place of violence and control and manipulation was his ego. You see, Herod was conveniently Jewish when he wanted to be. And so he was deeply disturbed because his throne, his kingdom, was being threatened. So let me ask you something. What do you do when your throne or your kingdom is threatened? How do you handle it? What do you do? What do you do when actually people come into your sphere of influence, whether it be at work or in the sports world or in the dance world or in whatever it is that you love to do and be a part of, and someone comes in and you think that they're just a little bit better than you? Is ego your enemy? Look what it says in verse 4 through 8. And this is significant. I, I oftentimes think there are parts of passages that we jump over to make them nice and fluffy. Watch this. It says, he called a meeting of the, of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least amongst the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And he told them, go to Bethlehem. And search, for, and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him. What? Too. Now oftentimes, when, when we read this passage quickly, because we always want to get to the manger, or the magi, or the shepherds, or the inn, we don't even look at that there was a meeting called. And it wasn't one meeting, there were actually Two meetings. Two meetings. This is very, 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 very significant. And I'm going to draw that out. It was so significant because the first meeting was he grabbed all of his scribes, all his religious leaders, all of his Pharisees, all of his Sadducees, all of his zealots. He grabbed everyone from every spiritual camp in the Jewish culture. And he says, tell me, what's going on? What's happening? And they say, yeah, there is going to be one. And his name is going to be called King of the Jews. Huh? Seriously? Now, when you really read this passage and you then find out that Herod was half Jewish, there are two things that took place. 
Either A, he definitely knew that this child was going to be born, but there was a manipulation. The Jews gave him the title, King of the Jews. And he's thinking, wait, 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 wait. I was given that title. That's my position. That's my authority. So how are they going to take it away from me? And yes, there was one that was going to come. And here's what we do know about Herod. He would have known that he wasn't from the line of David. I mean, this stuff is deep. It wasn't just like he had some ego and he wanted to be in control. It was so much more. But here's another thing that probably happened. God was silent for 400 years. 400 years. And then all of a sudden, God shows up. He shows up. And people are like, yeah, I, I think I remember that. Did you notice that they weren't jumping, jumping up and down? They're like, yeah, there, there is more. So I actually believe either two things happened. One, he truly believed that he was supposed to be the king of the Jews. Or two, everybody forgot. Everybody forgot. It's kind of like this. When God does something wild in church, really, God healed? Yes. Really, God transformed lives? Yes. God can restore relationships? Yes. I never knew that. You see that throughout Scripture. And so there's this tension. Now watch this. It's frightening what some people have done throughout history when their ego is threatened. It's frightening what some people have done throughout history when their egos are threatened. Now, think about this. Even at the greatest moments in all of history, one man's ego was his worst enemy. At the greatest moment of all of history, one man's ego was his greatest enemy. I want you to say this. I will not, say it out loud, I will not allow ego to be my greatest enemy. Now here's what I want you to do. I'm going to come a little closer. I want you to own it. I will not. No, seriously. I will not allow ego to be my greatest enemy. You know how humiliating it is for me to make you say that? I have to put my ego away because some of you are going to be like, I'm not saying it no matter how much he tells me. But think about that. Ego. At the greatest moment in all of history was one man's greatest enemy. And I can promise you this. Your greatest enemy in which you have seen your greatest enemy failures or mistakes has been the problem of your ego, including myself. Verse 16 through 18, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance, Herod's brutal actions fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And this is all that Matthew, the author, writes. He pens word for word Jeremiah 31, and he says, A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are So what happens? Herod takes his power into his own hands. He takes control into his own hands. And he does only what Herod knows what to do, and that's brutally take back his throne. 
And there's a word for what happened. The slaughter of the innocents. Do you know that's an actual title given to what had happened in Bethlehem? The slaughter of the innocents. And that is where the name, the butcher of Bethlehem, came about. The butcher of Bethlehem was the one who gave the charge for the slaughter of the innocent. He gave the orders. Slaughter every boy two years old and younger. Now, when we think about Bethlehem, and if you grew up in the 70s and you used to watch the Jesus films, remember that? It seemed like, like Bethlehem was this massive city, and hundreds of babies were, were, were slaughtered. That's not it at all. Bethlehem was a little village, one of the least of these. And so maybe at that time, matter of fact, Megan Tyler and I, I was, I was sharing my message with her, and she said, you ever think about this? That it wasn't hundreds of kids that were slaughtered in Bethlehem. It was probably about 14 kids that were slaughtered, two years old and younger. And Megan, I really chewed on that. Like, that was a big deal. And people say, well, why isn't it in the history books? Why can't we find it? Why have we only found it in one or two little places? Because this was how Herod behaved. When he didn't get his way, he slaughtered people. Whether it be his wife, his mother-in-law. His children. And when he felt like his throne was threatened, what did he do? He slaughtered all the babies two years old and younger. And if it was one baby or 14 babies, it's wrong. It's wrong. Hmm, let me bring it back to American history. Oh, no, he ain't going there. What did Andrew Jackson have done to the Cherokee people? The Trail of Tears. Well, you don't really understand that historical story, do you? I'm part Cherokee. My great-grand, my great, what was it? My great-grandfather was 100% Cherokee Indian. They moved from Kentucky and went to Georgia. This stuff is real. But because Bethlehem was this little village and this was the characteristics of how Herod behaved, it just wasn't written down. And yet, historically, we can prove it. The slaughter of the innocent, the butcher of Bethlehem. Did this really happen? Follow his character. Follow his temperament. But but here's what's so interesting. Why is it all bullies are really cowards at heart? Why is it that all tyrants are cowards at heart? Seriously, think about it. When you really, really get confronted with a bully, they're actually a bunch of cowards. When I was in sixth grade, I'll never forget this guy, Kevin Reynolds. Kevin Reynolds, he was an eighth grader. And because I was the biggest kid in class, I had to protect all my little friends. Because all my friends were like a foot and a half shorter than me. And everywhere I went, I was an eighth grader, but I was really a sixth grader. And so as a kid, you had higher expectations on you because you're tall. What does that mean? What does that mean? And I remember Kevin Reynolds was bullying my friends. And I pulled a rock. I started crying. You, me- you remember the Christmas, the Christmas carol, right, the story, right? Right, you'll shoot your eye out. You remember that? Remember when he was pounding on the kid and he was crying, frickety, frackety, frickety, frackety, frickety, frackety, and they, they, that was me. I literally hated bullies because bullies were cowards. And I'll never, I'll never forget The circle was formed, and there's Rob and Kevin Reynolds. And that boy, he got, I won't even say it. (laughs) But I hated it because it was always people picking on those who were lesser than them, those who were cowardly, cowardly. All tyrants are cowards at heart. They rule by force, and the one thing they fear most is a force greater greater than themselves. The man who tried to kill Christmas almost did, but he couldn't because you can't kill God. People can try to silence God. People can kind of try to shut up the church. But God is the 
unstoppable force. You know what God did? He, woke up, he spoke to the Magi in a dream. It wasn't the angels. It wasn't Gabriel. It wasn't someone from the temple or the synagogue. It was God. And God showed up in the Magi's dream. And he said, take a different route home. Do not go back the way you came. And then God showed up to Mary and Joseph and said, go to Egypt. Now, this is my paraphrase. You see all that gold? You see all that frankincense? You see all that myrrh? I'm providing for you as you take the long way home. Because I am Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. I will provide all things, Joseph and Mary, when you step out in faith. When we step out in faith, we invite God to do the impossible because he is the God of possibilities. What we think is supernatural, it's his natural character. And so God is an unstoppable force. And I love this. I love what, I love what, what one author wrote because the joke was on Herod. Now, now, I want you to give me a little amen. Let's hand this baby up, okay? When I point to you, you say amen really loud. The trickster had been tricked. The con man had been conned. And the liar had been double-crossed. Come on. Seriously. Let's do that again. The trickster had been tricked. The con man had been conned. The liar had been double-crossed. Why? Because God is an unstoppable force. And you cannot stop the move of God. The only one who can stop the move of God is you. And if you stop it, trust me, God's going to hunt you down. And he's going to shake you up. Because his love is so big and so grand that he doesn't want you to miss out on the plans that he has for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And when you, as it says in Jeremiah, when you call on the name of the Lord, he shows up. I am so getting ready for revival. The church... For over 2,000 years, the church has not stopped. In the garden, Satan tried to stop humanity. In Egypt, Satan put the people of God into slavery. In Babylon, the people of God were, were supposed to be silent, but Daniel spoke up. The Pharisees, Sadducees, the Zealots, Herod, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, all tried to stop the work of God, and it was unstoppable. And even today, missionaries throughout this world, yes, they've been martyred, yes, they've been thrown in prison, but the gospel has never stopped. There is persecution around us. And historically, persecution exists. Look what Jesus said in John 1, 11, And this is my first closing point. Opposition is historically present. This is what it said. He came to what was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came to his world, but his own world did not receive him. Herod stands as a symbol for the kind of world Jesus came into. Herod stands for the bloodthirsty, cruel, vindictive side of the world system and also humanity. People, opposition is historically present. To think that you're going to avoid opposition, you're going to find yourself in a very dark and isolated matter. Did you hear what I said? It started in the garden. We see it 
an exodus with the Israelites and the Egyptians. We see it in the book of Daniel with Daniel and the Babylonians. We see it in the Gospels with Jesus and the religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to receive him. We see this in the early church with the early church and the Gnostics and those who were atheistic and pluralistic that, that constantly came against the church. We have seen this all throughout history. Look what's going on in our school systems. Prayer, take it out. Think about the idea of abortion. Like we don't believe and we don't value human life. Shame on humanity. Shame on humanity. Even during COVID, think about how some Christians have handled it. Well, as long as it's not my parent. Really? Seriously? There is constant opposition. But church, the opposition that I'm talking about is about gospel opposition. Not political opposition. There is opposition against the gospel. Do you know that some in this generation have never fully heard the gospel message? There's a young man that, that I've, I've had the privilege to really get to know him. And he said to me two weeks ago, he said, Rob, you brought up that, that, that right now that the younger kids are from an atheistic society, like generation. He said, I was one of them. He said, I never heard the gospel message until I came to the plant. I heard about a guy named Jesus and the holidays surrounding him, but I never understood what the gospel was. You go back 30 years ago, everybody knew the gospel. They just didn't want it or they did want it. Period, end of story. No big deal. Well, it is a big deal, but no big deal. You know what I'm saying. It's different. Opposition is both a historical and present day reality. But the real question is, where did opposition originate? You see, here's what we have to learn about opposition. It's not personal. It's spiritual in nature. And so oftentimes when we feel that people are opposing us, what do we do? We take it personally. But I love what my daughter had said. She was in Tea House doing missions for seven weeks. And during seven weeks of being there, she felt a lot of persecution. There was actually one morning at 5 a.m. my daughter was ripped out of her bed. And she was basically told to renounce the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she said, uh-uh. I'm not renouncing Jesus. You, you can, but I'm not. And for three hours, they questioned her. And I'm, I'm thinking as a daddy, like, I'm ready to go daddy on her. And she said, dad and mom, I couldn't take it personally because it was spiritual in nature. Do you realize that people in your life that oppose your faith or oppose you as an individual, they're just pawns in the enemy's game. And what we have to realize is that we can be used as pawns in other people's lives. Because of jealousy, because of anger, because of resentment. We, you and I, can be pawns in the enemy's evil schemes. So where does it originate? Jesus says that there's one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Paul says this, this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Yes, political powers are being blinded to the things of God. Yes, people in position are being blinded to the things of God. And yes, even in many of your work environments, people are being blinded by the work of God because there's no space in your vocation to have gospel conversations. But let me push back really hard right now. Do you know God gave you your, your vocation so that you can be gospel present? Do you know that? 
God gave you your vocation so you can be gospel present. And you cannot fear the opposition that Satan is trying to throw at you. Because it's not that individual. It's the one who's pressing on them because they are feeling threatened in some way. I'll never forget a buddy of mine. He works in the financial industry. There came a day where someone he was overseeing their finances was really struggling. I believe it was several years ago, so I believe it was with health matters. And, and he said, Rob, he called me up and said, Rob, I did it. So I got on the phone, and I just, I just shared. I realized that I could have lost a client. I realized, I could, I, I realized that this could have really been bad for me at work. But God opened the moment for me to share the hope that I profess. Now, I don't want to exaggerate the story, but I believe that the guy said that he even ducked under his desk. It's terrifying. But do you realize all of the, all the success you have, all the gifts, all the talents that you have been given are from God to bring him glory. So whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? If my first two points are true, then my, my third one wraps it all up. Opposition is historically present. And opposition is not personal, it's spiritual. So here's what I want to do. Turn to the person on your left and say this, you are not my enemy. Turn to the person on your right, you are not my enemy. Okay, right, right, someone spoke to the wall, right? Some of you are like, phew, I got the wall. But I want you to remember that. You cannot take it personal. You can't, you can't, you can't. But then there's one final point. Opposition deepens our faith and strengthens our convictions. Opposition, it deepens our faith and strengthens our convictions. So let me prove this. I believe when you look at scripture, opposition is an indicator that your convictions are valid. Opposition is an indicator that your convictions are valid. Now, again, I'm talking about Jesus stuff. Someone's like, all right, so I am a really good Republican. All right, I am a really good Democrat. All right, you see this virus is a real scam. All right, you see the vaccine, it's really working. Stop! That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel. The gospel. When someone comes after you about the gospel and what you profess and how you believe and how you live out the fullness of who you are as a child of God, yes, opposition is an indicator that your faith is valid. Look what Jesus wrote. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. If you are going through persecution, you are in really, really good company because you're in the company of Jesus. If people mock you, wow, I'm chilling with Jesus. If people say false things against you, wow, I'm hanging with Jesus. If people try to put you down and destroy everything about you, then you guess what? Wow, you are walking with Jesus. Do I get an amen for that? Seriously. Take this whole idea of, of westernized Christianity, this Christian light faith that we all kind of want to buy into and throw it away. Jesus says, if you are being persecuted, you're hanging with me. And there's nobody better to hang with than with Jesus. Man, imagine if the church started out loving the world. Right? Imagine if the church outgave the world. Imagine if we were the people, the church, that we would just provide for people's needs. Imagine if we were the first people to our neighbor's doors. Wow, did 
didn't I call you that? Didn't I say those things against you? Wasn't I the one that caused all this havoc? And he said, yeah. But now it's time for me to love you like Jesus. Opposition can manifest and does manifest in strengthening of our faith. James, Jesus' brother, I, I love that James wrote an epistle. Because James and his siblings did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't believe it. We watched you grow up. There's no way you're the Son of God. We know you. We've hung out with you. There's no way you're Emmanuel, God with us, because you drove us crazy. But there came a moment that James, the one who mocked, the one who taunts, the one who, who persecuted his own brother, came to the realization that my brother is Emmanuel, the Son of God, and this is what he wrote. He said, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is being tested, being opposed, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. For God supplies all my needs according to his riches and his glory. Do you realize when, when, the, when things get tough, we need to get going. When things get hard, we need to lean in. Because it's in those tough portions that what we see is that God does his best work. It's like with marriage or parenting. It's going to be difficult because you're dealing with the people you love the most. Do you know that? And so when God's dealing with humanity, he's dealing with those he loves most. Any persecution, any opposition you come against, God is going to use it to strengthen you and encourage you and build you up so his work is made complete in your life. And I don't want to die until his work is done in me. Amen? Amen? I really believe for such a time as this, just like God dealt with Esther, God is dealing with humanity in this moment for such a time as this. Church, this is what opposition teaches us, that God is greater than any one or any thing. Because God's an unstoppable force and he cannot kill why is it that the Scrooge and Grinch, their stories are both redeemed? He cannot stop or kill Christmas. So, I know I'm a little heated this morning, but it's in a good way. Going through this sermon series on faith was not to get you excited. It was to strengthen you. That you would build your life on God. And that Jesus would be the one who you constantly look to. And you would allow the flame of the Holy Spirit to fill you. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet to the extension of your arms to the depths of your soul. Because God's work is not complete yet in your life. His best work is just about to happen. Build it. Build it. I'll end with this story. I really much, when I first became a Christian, thought Christianity was supposed to make my life perfect. Anyone think that before? Everything's going to work out. Everything's perfect. No. I'll never forget. I 
our first major situation in our family. And I remember sitting on a boat dock, sitting on a dock, sitting on the dock of the bay. And I looked across the lake, and I felt the Holy Spirit say, what are you going to do with this, with this situation? Are you going to allow it to strengthen you or destroy you? Is it, are you going to allow it to, to cause you to lean in or walk away? I took a deep breath. And I pulled a Peter. Where else am I going to go? I'm going to lean in. And I'm not going to move until you are finished. And plant family, I know you all think I'm really weird. Over the lake... I saw a foundation of a house being built. This was a spiritual moment. This is what God does. Remember with the Magi? He led them and then he spoke to them. I was looking over the lake and I saw a foundation of the house being completed. And this is what the Spirit of God said. Your foundation is laid. Let's start building the walls. you lean in to your conflicts and your struggles and those who oppose you, God will complete his work. That's my prayer. God will complete his work in your life for his will. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.